Australian Herpetoculture Podcast. I'm Jason. My name's Luke. How you going, buddy? Good man, good man. Another good day, another dollar. Week. No, you did well. Gee, <laughs> <laughs> well, six months of practice and we're still stuffing it up. I know. I think we will all the time. Yeah. No, well, such is Makes life, Makes a bit mate. of fun. That's it. That's it. How you been? Good, good. Busy, but good. Yep. Can't catch yeah. a break, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm struggling to keep my head above water at the moment. It's like that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's shocking. Yep. All right. We're going to jump straight into this uh, episode tonight, guys, and um, we're going to welcome Josh. I'm going to butcher your last name here, Josh Festuka. That's that. That's a fair effort, you know. That's uh, better than a lot of people do. I'll, I'll give you that. You, you've taken the the, the full on Italian way of saying it, so I, I write that. That's that's well done. Oh, my sister was Italian, so I've got to you. say these things. <laughs> that's why I thought I'll let Luke, let Luke introduce because I'm going to butcher it worse than Luke. So I'm shocking. Should, we could have probably practiced that before we hit we the live, you know, record button. But you know, yeah. oh well. <laughs> this Makes is the way things are going. Everyone stuffs up my last name anyway, so I'm used to it personally. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, mate, well, welcome to the show. So this is Josh from Josh's Aussie Reptiles on Facebook. Uh, Josh is one of Australia's younger reptile keepers and works with a variety of species at home. And on top of that, Josh runs his own podcast with his pod partner, Dane, called Critters and Stuff. And to round it out, Josh is also going to be helping out at MacKillop Catholic Regional College, uh, college's new reptile facility that he's, now that he's just wrapped up his own school life at the college. So, mate, welcome to the show and thanks for joining You're us. welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's it's quite interesting. Uh, it's a funny feeling listening to the intro. Like I'm normally, you know, taking the dog for a walk or doing something with the reptile shed, and listening to the the intro and actually seeing it in person is it's a funny experience. Oh mate, uh, two dudes with a bunch of lizards in boxes behind them. That's yeah, all it is, yeah. mate. We're just having a yarn. Exactly, which is <laughs> good. I think that's what we love. That's what makes it good. I reckon it's not it's, you know not so serious. It's fun. It's good. It's a good chat. Oh, yeah, that's casual. it. It's it's always easier when it's just, uh, you know, as you said, casual. It's always easier to do that than, you know, all formalized and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we put together a bit of a list of questions, as you, as you know, and, you know, that's just kind of a bit of a guideline. You know, we usually get sidetracked and start talking about all sorts of stuff, especially yeah. when it's me and Jason. We barely <laughs> yeah. keep it on the rails. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, usually we're both sitting down here having a beer in our boxer shorts and... <laughs> <laughs> we'll make a guess on we don't wear boxer shorts we shorts on so. I'm not standing up tonight <laughs> but yeah no mate all good fun so Josh why don't you just kind of start us off with giving us a bit of a quick rundown about what got you started in keeping reptiles in particular yep yep um, so I suppose my sort of getting into reptiles is a little bit different to some of the previous guests that you've had on because I'm sort of part of that I suppose that next generation um, the new era. Yeah, the something new, yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so basically my upbringing was watching Steve Irwin, Steve Backshaw, uh, David Attenborough and Chris Humphrey. And that was that plus zoo trips. I think I've gone to Werribee and Melbourne Zoo more times than I can count, um, especially in the first probably six to ten years of my life. I think we almost tried to do every zoo in our local area every school holidays. Um so that was kind of like the the animal fascination started there, and uh, similar to some people with the whole dinosaurs thing as well. It was kind of that whole loop in, and then sort of a chance event happened where one of my mum's uh, work friends was keeping some animals at home. I had no idea that that was a thing, like no prior experience to that whatsoever. Um, but she knew that I had a, an interest in you know reptiles, 
Um, so she, they were going on holidays and she goes, oh, do you want to look after them for us? I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Tell me what to do and I'll, I'll figure it out. So they had a shingleback, a blue tongue and a couple of turtles. So for the next couple of weeks, I'd look after those. And then um, her husband said, oh, there's a reptile shop like five minutes down the road. You should go there one day and have a look. And that was uh, Adam Sapiano, who's the, the uh, president of the VHS. He had a, a little shop down there, uh, down in Werribee. And um, from that point on, basically, I spent every second weekend going through the shop, uh, annoying whoever was there. And that's how I met half the VHS guys as well. And it just kind of blossomed from there. But that is a bit of a different story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose I never really had the, like a lot of the, the people that you talk to have got that like catch and keep thing. I've lived yep. in suburbia my whole life. The closest thing to reptiles we get here is marbled geckos, um, especially at the old house. This one here, we've had a few blue tongues and tiger snakes just kind of appear out of nowhere. Um, but yeah, at, the, at the, the house that I grew up in, there was no animals, nothing like that, uh, barring the dog that was in the backyard. That's about it. Yeah, geez. Yeah. So it's, yeah, not really anything around really to uh, kind of sp spark that interest initially, I suppose. So Yeah, it was just sort of, as I said, just that sort of chance event. And then it just exploded from there. I think within sort of the first year or two, I went from just a single blotch blue tongue who I've still got now to about 10 different animals and just kept kept going and going from there to the point where now I uh, I had to take over the family shed and turn that into the reptile room instead of uh, half the garage that it was to begin <laughs> with. And actually it was initially just a tank in this room behind me first and then it's just kind of gro outgrown the space there. and kept going and going to the point now where I'm looking at things going, could I fit an extra shed or another outdoor enclosure somewhere in the backyard? Is that going to make too much, you know, not enough space for the dog? Should I, you know, where can I position things? <laughs> Tetris. Yeah. That's it. it never that's stops. It. So you're yeah. lucky to have that pet shop down the road too. Like that's such yeah. a, like he's such a great guy to have and talk to, to learn yeah, from definitely. as well. Definitely. And it helped as well. A lot of the, the guys that are still at the VHS now were down there pretty much every weekend as well. I remember yep. one time I, I don't know if they would appreciate me saying this or not, but there was one time where Adam had just gotten a snake call out and, and brought a, a little tiger snake back to the shop for some photos before he was going to release it. And they were all crowding around it. And I was there with my mum, who at the time was not too fond of the snakes idea. And uh, I was kind of looking around going, oh, I, I think I know what that is. Mum, you stay at the car. I'll go over and see <laughs> what they're doing. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of, as I said, just exploded from there pretty much. That's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, laws are a little bit different between New South Wales and, and Victoria, for example. Can you kind of give us some, some examples about what they would be allowed at the shop? Like, because I think Victoria yep. is pretty lucky where they can actually have a whole different bunch of species than what we can have. Yeah, the shop. yeah. So, um, for at least my understanding of the, the shop system is they can have anything that is on a basic wildlife license down here. So that yep. ranges from uh, things like Centralian blueies to your, your gillens. I know you love those, Luke. Um, marble velvets, stores, even scrubbies, uh, lace monitors, olive pythons, blackheaded's, just about anything really. Um, wow. The only things that they kind of can't have uh, anything on the advanced, uh, generally speaking, which is your like your rough scale pythons, green trees, um, and venomous and, and crocs yep. as well. Um, Although I have seen some places you can, they can get around it by applying for certain species to have 
to sell to like demonstrators or zoos or whatever it may be as well. So there is right. some leeway there. Basically, any of the, the commercial licenses have got a bit of leeway as far as being able to apply for different things. That's why a lot of the demos down here have got species that we can't keep privately. Um, yep. And then for privates, you've got off-license, you've got basic, and you've got advanced. Um, so in theory, the advanced you can only get when you're 18 uh, unless you have like a written letter to say that you, you, you know, you're competent with venomous snakes in particular. Um, although I think they've been a little bit more relaxed on that side of things for the time being. Um, the basic license is just about anybody can go in and get that. Um, although the difference between you guys and us is that you guys can basically apply for it uh, while you're standing in the shop, I believe. Yeah, yep. Yep. It's, it's a fairly quick process. For us, we have to still send it off either email or snail mail um, yep. and wait for them to go through all of their processes. And it usually takes about a month, give or take. Um, but yeah, that's a, a general overview of the, the, the system, I suppose. For the, the off-license stuff, you've got Cunningham skinks, uh, eastern and northern blueies, uh, and blotchies. Um, there's My River shortnecks and eastern longnecks. Uh, what else? Marble geckos and a few frogs as well. So that's like the that's the most common stuff that you'll find in the pet, pet shops, uh, at least the, the more mainstream ones, I suppose, uh, are going to be that off-license stuff because it's the easiest for them to move on. Um, yeah. And then generally you'll find most shops, Adams was kind of the exception because that he'd just get in the random stuff that he more wanted to play with than what would sell well, uh, which is yeah. probably why, unfortunately, it didn't last too long, um, at least not by the time that I was kicking around. Um so generally, you'll find they'll have carpet pythons and your enteresia and your beardies, that sort of stuff. You know, the, uh, same with you guys. It's generally just the, the stuff that's going to move well yeah. is what most yeah. shops are going to stock. Mm. And then we've got a few specialty reptile stores that'll do a bit of the, the odds and ends, I suppose. Yeah. Did you find that the, the off-license stuff gets kept a lot more down there? Like, Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you'll find that Aside from probably the beardies and the pythons, there's not a whole lot on license that gets kept broadly down here. Um, yep. Whereas off license, there's a surprising amount of people that have Cunningham skinks, even though I haven't had a good track, track record with those. And I know a lot of people that haven't. They're just a bit bit crazy for my liking. Um, and the blueies are, they're everywhere pretty much. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is, I suppose it makes sense being the, the, the pet grade animal that they are, if, if that's, you know, the way that you go about things, it makes sense that they're going to be the one that most people have. Yeah, they do make such a good pet, though. Mm. Yeah, so. definitely. They're basically indestructible, really. As long as you're doing everything roughly okay, you should be fine. Yeah, I honestly think that blue tongues in in general, and I'm going to generalize all blue tongues there, but I think they're a better first reptile pet than like any beardy. Most mm. snakes, you know, I mean, snakes are pretty easy, but, you know, blue tongues are a little bit less inclined to bite you when you go to pick it up, you know. So, you know, as an introductory pet into the reptile world, blueies are probably one of the better ones in my opinion. Yeah, certainly out of the stuff that we can have in Australia, at least, they certainly would surpass most things. Although I wouldn't recommend shinglebacks or the Centralian blueies. They tend to yeah. be uh, do a bit of uh, their business on you every time you pick them up. <laughs> yeah and you know that like maybe they need to be a little bit more specialized in the sense that they might need a slightly more dry environment probably the same as the westerns as well you yeah. know but that sort of stuff's pretty easy to tweak in most households um you Especially know keeping them indoors yeah mm. yeah definitely what were you going to say jess 
Oh, that's exactly what I was about to say. You beat me oh, to sorry, it. Right. <laughs> and now you're right. <laughs> Bridge to the punch. <laughs> yeah. So, Josh, can you give us a little bit like, you, you know, you've obviously got the, the reptile Tetris happening at home like most of us, but can you give us a bit of a rundown about what you're sort of keeping these days? Yep, yep. I've got my uh, my whiteboard list next to me here, so I'll read it as it <laughs> oh, <wow>. sits. Um, <laughs> Organised. So, we have got uh, two male, one female South Australian Westerns, two baby Centralian Blueys, uh, three Centralian Carpets, uh, two male, one female Dajara Locality Murray Darling, pair of Pilegia Locality Murray Darlings, one New South Wales Murray, one uh, Barmar Forest Vic Murray, four King Skinks, one's definitely a boy, three we'll find out, uh, a two male, two female group of Eastern Water Dragons, two male, six female Lowlands Blotchies, and one male, five female Northern Blue Tongues currently as it stands wow nice you're um you've got a quite a lot of locality murrays there i'm guessing the murrays are probably one of your favorites by, by the sounds of it yeah it's been a bit of a, a recent addiction i started off the, the way i sort of started getting into everything was heavy into the blue tongues first um which i've sort of found it worked it worked well as, a, as an introductory um but I found that the Murrays have really sparked my interest as sort of the next thing that I want to go into. Um, yep. And I'm looking at potentially probably reducing the number of blue tongues, at least the ones that are indoors, um, because they do take up a bit of room um, and trying to go bigger enclosures for the Murrays and, you know, just the carpet pythons in general. Um, like for the Brettles, I've currently got a 180 by 180 by 120 in the works um, at the moment that will hopefully be done around Christmas, give or take, um, as my own mini piece of Alice Springs um, with, a, with a little uh, – I've got a plan to do like a little uh, wood hut on one side as well just to finish off the look. I've got a rusty piece of tin out the back saved for it and ready to go. Um, but, yeah, my, my idea is to kind of go smaller collection size but bigger space um, and give them, you know, everything that they need and more, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like that's the way a lot of people seem to be going this day and age, which is quite good to see, I reckon. Yeah, well, it certainly mean, makes it... it uh, you go, sorry. No, you're right. No, you it go. certainly makes things a, a lot easier, you know, having less animals maintenance-wise and feeding-wise and that sort of stuff. But it's also adding to that enjoyment factor as well because you can see them doing, you know, what they would be doing naturally as well. Um, I think that adds a bit of extra experience to it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, Jason and I, just before you, you hopped on here, we were pretty much just having a chin wag about that sort of stuff where we were going, you know what, like it it does seem to be a way of the future with a lot of keepers where they are going bigger and better enclosures, less animals, watching more behaviours, enjoying the animals for being the animal rather than that kind of collectoritis type mm. style of things. And I was saying to Jason, you know, I'm getting a little bit burnt out at the moment just because of the extra hours at work and all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking after this breeding season, I might pull the reins in a little bit and see if I can tighten up ship for that exact same reason that you've already said there. So yeah, good on you for kind of leading by example too for a lot of the younger guys as well. For bigger, um, you know, more animals does not always mean better. Yeah, well, I think I kind of, to be, to be completely honest, I made that mistake at the start. I went very hard at the beginning and realized very quickly that that was not the way that I wanted to go. I did have done like the rack systems for blue tongues as well. And I found that that was not, 
not for me. Um, I know some people do it successfully and that sort of thing. That's a whole nother topic. Um, but I've, I tried that sort of thing and the, you know, the more, dare I say, like a larger collection in a smaller space. I tried yep. that, wasn't a fan. I decided that I actually wanted to be able to see the animals rather than just a, a set of tubs. Um, so I kind of went from there and figured, okay, what can I do so that I can still enjoy the animals, but they still get what they need as well and kind of mm. fit it all into the space that I had and everything like that. Um, but I, I like to think I'm doing at least a half decent job at managing everything uh, and getting them all into the spaces that they need. Yeah, that's the thing is uh, you've got to, you've got to enjoy it as well, you know. Mm. I mean, racks have their purpose. I mean, some people love them, some people hate them, but at the end of the day, as long as you're getting enjoyment out of it and the animals are healthy, you know, that's the main thing that matters. So, Yeah, definitely. I found... Um, for babies, they work really well. Even for the blueies, exactly. although that might be that might be a strange thing for for some people. For the blueies, it works really well just to get them going first. Um, sometimes you can get picky eaters here and there, um, yep. so they can find their food, they can find their water, and they can get away from me and away from you know heat and everything like that. Um, so it works really well for that purpose. But generally, I've actually found this year, um, although it may be a mixture of different things, I found that this year in my breeding season. I had a lot, or at least hopefully, we'll have a lot more success compared to last year. So last year, I only had a single baby born. I bred the same amount of girls, same boy. You know, all of that was equally the same. The difference was garage and rack to insulated shed and uh, those uh, URS plastic tanks. Um, And the reaction that I've seen, at least from the the male towards the females, has been completely different Um, and you know, he went from maybe being lucky to get one lock in with each girl and then having no interest whatsoever to multiple times over each female. And they're all looking plump. So fingers crossed. I timed it to perfection though, almost too well. I deliberately cooled them and bred them late to avoid that hitting during my exam period. Um, Although now that I'm done, I'm kind of like itching, like, come on, come on. I know you're ready. Just, <laughs> just, just pop. So I know what I'm, you know, know, know what's there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's always daunting when you, you know, something's on the way and you're just waiting for that day for it to happen, whether it be live birth with some blue tongues or a green tree python that's still sitting Eternal on eggs. <laughs> <incubation. laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. It's, yeah, that anticipation. <clears throat> Fun me. Oh, yeah, I, might, I might have to take some notes off you with the maternal incubation. I'm trying to, I'm hoping to try and do that with the female Murray as well. Um, yeah, okay. Well, that'd be awesome to see, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's still looking nice and fat. But again, with the timing of everything, it's like a month later than all the books say because I deliberately timed it that way. So we'll just see what happens. I'd, I'm hoping that it works. But um, it's, again, same thing. This year compared to last year with them is night and day. Um, although husbandry-wise is identical. Um, I think I just got the timing right this year. Like I actually saw a proper lock. I didn't uh, – previously you just sort of see them like sitting next to each other and you go, oh, is it, isn't it, I don't know. Can we get like a different angle? Can you just move a little bit so we can see? Um, but whereas this year everything seemed to work out perfectly. Um, so fingers crossed everything goes to plan um, and then have some baby Maris because that, be, that would be tops for me. But there are species of carpet that you just don't see getting around yeah. nearly as much as they should be either. They're a very yeah. underrated python in the Australian hobby. Um, yeah, they're fantastic. We had some not 
I think it was last year in at the shop, and they sat there forever. Everyone was going past them. Yeah. I'm like, you guys are all insane. This is the best carpet python we've had in this shop in God knows how long. But you put like, a jungle in there and it almost walk out the door. Jungle, just of that. albino Darwins, yeah. Bradley. Flashy color. Exactly. Yeah. Although, I must say, some of the uh, the Murrays that actually uh, Kelly Nowak at um, Hawkesbury Reptiles is pumping out, I tell you, some of those like Dajaris from you know Queensland and that, they're a smaller size and they're just bright as anything. Like it's almost white silver on red. Like they're just wow. insane. That's who I got and these ones off. That highly recommend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's Kelly's the thing nice with carpets lady. when they're babies is they're very bland looking. Like they take mm. they take like a, to at least a year before they start to show decent color. Yeah, especially yeah, the Murrays. Like I got when yeah. I got my first one, she was a yearling, and um, even then, compare photos of her then to what she is now. You you couldn't pick it at that yeah. time. There's no way that you'd be able to go. Yep, that's going to turn out like that in a few years' time. It's yeah, they're one of those ones that changes quite a bit. I've found um, from you know that that first sort of year or two compared to three, four, five years old. It's big difference. So what was it like being one of the younger generation of keepers coming up in the hobby with like information being a little bit more readily available? Because most of the people we've spoken to, it was, you know, back, yeah, there wasn't many books around, the internet wasn't quite so prevalent, there wasn't social media groups and all this and that. Yep. What was it yep. like? Was it probably, yeah. Yeah, it was It was an interesting experience. Um, I suppose... I think for me, dare I say, I'm a little bit old-fashioned. Um, my first thing was actually I stumbled across uh, Joe Ball's page. That was one of the first things that I did when it came to the, the reptile side of things. Um, yep. So my first put of call was to go straight to messaging him and go, "All right, what's your, you know, give me all your information, tell me everything. What 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 is what does this mean? Like I saw, I think I, I still have the photo that I was drawn to saved somewhere." It was like one of his early litters of albinos and anaries. And I was like, yep, I need to know everything about that. Um, so I suppose for me, I've done a lot of the go straight to the horse's mouth and then go yep. from there. Um, I also like to do uh, messaging different people about the same thing and see what the responses are. So then you can figure out what the commonality is. Um, and then generally that's kind of what I go with as my you know go-to plan. Um but I think with the internet side of things, for me, um, the Aussie Pythons forum was like slowly on its way out as I started getting in. Um, but fortunately, over the years, I've been able to trawl through heaps of that and find different bits and pieces. Like um, even a couple of months ago, I'd find like a flashy photo of a jungle and go, oh, that's nice. I wonder who had that. And I'd send a photo to someone and go, do you know who's still got this? And they go, um, yes. And I go, that's a bad thing. I don't need those. No, you, sh you should have said no. <laughs> um, but yeah, between you know the forums and getting into the Facebook side of things, for the, actually for the first I think yearish, I was just using my dad's Facebook account um, because that was that was what what, what we did um, until he started realizing that his music posts were disappearing and there was a whole lot more reptiles. <laughs> um, so I think that kind of pushed him over the edge to go, all right, we're getting you a Facebook account, and then you can do what you need to do from there. Um, but I guess I suppose we've had YouTube as well, YouTube um, and these books. Um, yep. They're a good one, although a whole lot of people probably my age 
don't really know what these are nowadays, as scary as that sounds. Um, I have always been a, a keen reader when it comes to things that I'm actually interested in. Um, so I have similar to you guys, I've got the, the book addiction as well. Um, but yeah, I suppose it's been an, an interesting mix of the, the online side of things, the books and talking to people. I suppose I've been able to cross check a lot of information from whatever the sources may be. And yep. again, find that commonality and then go from there. Um, but I suppose, yeah, even that is foreign to what some people would do today. I find a lot of people maybe just do a Facebook post or whatever it may be or a brief search or something like that or even just go to your local pet store and ask a question and go from there. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's, it was certainly an interesting experience. I've Fortunately for me, I've spoken to – like I've had no issues with people that I've spoken to ever. Um, about, yep. you know, oh, you're a kid, go and sit over there or whatever it is, you know. I've not had any of those problems. People have been welcoming and everything like that and happy to chat, which has been fantastic. And um, very early on, I got introduced to the VHS um, and that's just exploded my ability to, you know, talk to people and to gain access to information as well um, through those guys as well. So I, I really can't complain as far as how I've gotten into it. Yeah, there's some awesome guys in the VHS too. I think it's one of those hobbies too that if you don't start making friends in the hobby, then you can kind of uh, maybe it's not as easy to kind of get a hold of a lot of information. Where the more you make friends with the right people and stuff like that, then the more you kind of have that you know common interest where they might have kept something that you haven't, but you want to keep it, and you can share that information, mm -hmm. and it's a bit more freely. Whereas I. I mean, something that I personally experience being one of those guys that do put themselves out there somewhat regularly, um, especially from the younger crowds, is they might ask me a question via a message or something like that, but they don't word it right. Mm. And what I mean by that is instead of going like, hi, how are you? Can, do you mind if you give me a little bit of information on this? It's just like a straight up question, mm. you know, without kind of yeah. any introduction and I can kind of find that a little bit harsh personally where I'm like, mm. well, well, you know, buy me dinner first before you start <laughs> jumping in the deep end, you know, it's, you know, it'll just be like, how do you breed this or mm. whatever? And it's not like, you, you get what I'm saying though, right? Like, yeah. It's, it's that, like a, that simple courtesy element kind of goes out the window sometimes yeah. with, with, especially with like, I'm noticing it, especially with the school now, I'm noticing it a lot more in some of the younger year levels. There's a lot less of that, just common courtesies, Manners simple respect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's that sort of element. I don't know if the last two years have done him any favours. Probably probably not, um, at least down here because we've been stuck at home pretty much yeah. for the last two years. Um, you dropped a bad down there. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was certainly an interesting time to be doing uh, year 11 and 12, that's for sure. But uh, that's all right. We've come out the other end and everything like that. But, yeah, it's, it's certainly I know what you mean with that whole – it's just those simple things, you know, just, just the common niceties, I suppose, um, yeah, that have been lost for some people, I suppose. But I think yeah. one good thing you've done as well is you've messaged a whole different group of people about one topic and chosen bits that would suit you and also took everything on board, whereas some people would talk to one person and take what that one person says as gospel. Yeah, yeah. Whereas that also seems kind of to be drawn a, a information from thing. everywhere else. And you've also got the books as well, so... You know, I find some of the younger people these day and age have so much knowledge at their fingertips that they could become awesome keepers, herpers, photographers, everything. But like Luke said, some of them just lack a little bit of manners sometimes, I think. Mm. And they just take one person's word as gospel instead of, you know, listening to some people that have 
might not do it the way they do it, but have done it for maybe a lot longer that have had those mishaps or, you know, things have gone wrong because that's also another way you learn a lot as well is when you've had things go wrong. So I think that's one good thing you've done is you've taken a lot of information on board from various different people and picked bits that suit you and not just said, you know, that's that's the way it's done because this person said it is. You've kind of adapted different things from different people, so... Yeah, well, it was like um, when I first started trying to breed my uh, Western Blueys, um, ironically, I had a, what I now know is a pair that I thought was two girls in together and then I put the uh, male, one, well, the spare male now, in with what turned out to be another male. And of course, that didn't end too well. Um, but I just thought it was like, oh, the female's not ready yet. Okay, that's that's fine. So I messaged a few different people. And I was like, um, you know, what do you what do you suggest? Um, he, they're they're just fighting the whole time, um, and most people were like, oh, you're just too early, just relax, give it another month, and you'll be fine. And then another person said like spraying them or something like that, but also wait a little bit longer. So I was like, okay, everybody's saying wait a little bit longer, so I'll do that. Spraying probably doesn't work too well with the setup that I've got, so I may not do that. But the the waiting that extra bit of time worked a treat, and um. I walked into the shed one day and went, hang on a minute. That I thought that was two girls. Now they're locked. Right. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> oh, man. We all make mistakes at the end of exactly. the day. And sometimes they turn out hilarious and sometimes not so hilarious. But, you know, I've got a couple of monitors that I could have sworn black and blue were boys and they're laying eggs on me. So, you know. Yeah. Well, it, it worked <laughs> out well because uh, it, I'd gotten that the Western off uh, Dane and he'd named it Greg. So initially we thought Greg was a male until Greg got a bit fatter and went, oh, don't know. And I was like, oh, maybe it's a girl. Uh, Sent some photos off to people and they're like, yeah, probably a girl. It just It's another point to that visual sexing of blue tongues that really doesn't always work um, yep. until you walk in and go, ah, that's what's happening. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, blue tongues are good for that. They're one of those ones that is horrible to sex. Yeah, like even I've had people send me videos and things and I'm like, look, I'm not even going to guess. Like, good luck. If it's if I've got it in hand and there's two of them, it's generally pretty easy because you can go, yep, there's similarities there. No, there's differences in that one. So that one's something else and that one's something else. Okay, that's easy enough. But when you just got a single photo of an animal that might be like slightly in the wrong position or something like that, I just go, no. Someone else can deal with that. I'm not even going to give it a guess. I like. I, I may be okay with the Northerns. That's probably my bread and butter as far as the Blueys go. Um, but if the second I get a photo of something else, I'm like, here, so send it to someone else. I go, uh, message this person. They might be able to help. Me, on the other hand, not going to do you any favors. <laughs> I just find that's easier as well. Like, uh, if ever you get messages from people that uh, after specific things, you know, instead of going, look, I don't keep them. That's it. Um, I like to do uh, like a message back going, look, I don't have these. Um, I don't plan on keeping them, but here's three or four different people that I know do have them or at least have had them. Maybe have a talk to them and they'll be able to set you in the right direction. I prefer sending them to the right person than trying to make something up on the spot and hoping yeah. that it's right. You know, I, I find that works fairly well as well. Yeah, it's definitely a good rule to live by. Something that I try to do on the regular as well. Yeah, I do the same. Yeah. So um, just to kind of come back to one of our guideline questions here, 
what sort of enclosures do you actually use at home and do you kind of have like most of us a bit of a hodgepodge of things and what what do you prefer out of the enclosures that you have for particular reasons um so at the moment i do have quite the hodgepodge i've got glass tanks behind me i've got wood tanks behind me i've got the pvc uh urs tanks in the shed i've got malamine tanks in the shed and then i've got a pit and an aviary as well um I sort of find for the outdoor things, I've really enjoyed the aviary, but from both, I've figured out things that I need to improve for the next one that I'm going to be doing uh, in the next couple of months, which will be a, a king skink enclosure. Um, so I'm going to put those outdoors. Um, and I, it's been good because over the last couple of years, I've been able to you know, write down, okay, that worked, that didn't work from this enclosure. This is what I can do better to make it work for the king skinks instead of a blue tongue or a water dragon, something like that. Um, for the indoor stuff, I I suppose it depends on the, the animal. Um, I think I found the, the blueies have been really easy in the, the plastic tanks uh, just because they're that perfect size for them. Although they're a little bit of a funny shape and everything, they're really good like cleaning-wise and the fact that I can lift them on my own is just perfect. Compare that to one of the Malamine tanks where I have to get someone to come around and give me a hand. Um, it, it, the, you know, the pros and cons, I suppose. Although when I did first set up those blue tongue tanks, I did put about 40 kilos worth of sand and rock in the bottom of that, and that wasn't a good idea. Um, but that's okay. We live and we learn. I was going for the natural look, and then I went, now I have to move that to change the light bulb on the one underneath. That's <laughs> that's not going to work. I, I can't lift that. <laughs> um, but, yeah. yeah, I suppose I've tried a bit of everything and just kind of figured out what works for certain animals as well. Um, like I found that the glass tanks work really well for like baby Murrays and baby snakes in general. Uh, same with tubs. I've got a set of tubs in a wooden tank behind me that works out fairly well for them as well. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, for the blueies, having access to the UV and the heat um, in the, the plastic tanks works really well. Um, and then for some of the snakes and like the king skinks at the moment are in just like your 120 by 60 by 60 melamines. Um, and that works fairly well too. It gives me enough space to do like climbing things and hides and different bits and pieces to give them, you know, the experience that you would hope for, I suppose, out of keeping an animal in a, in a wooden box in, in your house in the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like, sounds like my place here. You know, I've got a bit of everything. <laughs> not looking in the room behind you though. It just all looks uniform, mate. <laughs> well, this one's a bit of an exception, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think that was we- the only downfall with the URS plastic ones was the, to change a globe, you had to go in from the top. So if you had them stacked mm. up, you had to pull them all apart and swap them over. But apart have, from that, they were pretty good. Yeah, I have seen uh, – I know uh, Chris Kappa used to have uh, a, a purpose-built shelf system for them. That's probably the way that you would go ideally if you were going to do the more like naturalistic setup and everything with you know plenty of rocks and that in there would be so that you can individually pull them out, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that is one of the downfalls with them is the way that you change the globes. I also found that with mine, um, I got them from a, a very good friend of mine and a, a mentor actually. Um, and he'd used them for a few years and found that he had issues with them melting, um, under the, the heat of the, the globes. And so what we had to do was the, you know, the little metal grates for the heat lamps, we actually cut out the middle bit so that the, the heat goes straight through, or at least most of it goes straight through rather than getting caught on the grate because the grate heats up a whole lot. And then he actually found, because they're one of the earlier URS models, um, he got onto them about 20-odd years ago, give or take. So we cut out the grate so that the plastic that sits the grate sits on 
wouldn't melt, I suppose. Um, yeah, which the metal's not heating up. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, but then that also limits what you can put in the enclosure yeah. as well. So it's a, you know, you take the good with the bad, I suppose, and figure out what, what works for the individual animal and for the, the species that you're hoping to put in there, I suppose. Yeah. So I'm just curious because I do have a couple of these enclosures myself. Your metal grate sits inside the dome. Yes. Yep. Huh. Okay. So when I got mine, my metal grate was screwed to the outside of the dome. That could, you know, what that could be. That could be a, a change that they've made over the years. I would imagine. Because, yeah. um, because, yeah, I've got go. a couple of stack, stacked on top mm. of each other, and to change a light globe in the one that's underneath the the top one, I just undo a few screws and just drop down the fixture, redo the light globe up, and push it back in. Screw the grate back on the bottom of it. So yeah, I mean, mine were only two or three years old, so mm. uh, a lot more, a lot newer. Um, question though, did. What size enclosures are they that you've got? Uh, they're the the medium ones in the the sandstoney colour. So they're about ninety odd by I think they're like sixty or fifty something. You know that funny sort of sizing. Yeah, they're odd, aren't they? They're so I've got the large ones. So they're fifteen hundred by seven seventy deep. I think it is, and then five fifty tall or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, my doors don't line up properly. So when you actually look at the enclosure, and I was I was quite disappointed with them to be quite frank. Um, it might have just been a fault in like a particular mould or something like that that was done at the time. But when your glass door slides up against the plastic, my yep. door is like on an angle compared to the actual plastic mould. So I ended up having to put, because I was keeping small goannas in them, I had to put a silicon bead, like a really thick mm. 20 or 30 mil silicon bead down one side just to be able to keep the lizards actually in the box. Yep. But is yeah. The glass, I, what are the glass? Crooked? The glass is straight. It's in the mould. So to, for us to avoid that problem, Dane and I went down there and picked up the tanks uh, initially and I've ended up with pretty much all of them because he decided he wasn't going to use them for his space. Um, the way that we – so initially because they were kept outdoors, they're pretty bowed to be completely honest, um, but they work fine. What we did was we put in a swinging door instead. Um, so we I think it was that that Q-block stuff to yep. make the, the, the frame and then just uh, siliconed on a piece of glass. And just had a, a little bit that you know goes across to lock it in place, and just did it that way instead of because a lot of the glass we did have heaps of problems with getting the glass to move, especially in the when once they start bowing, there's no hope. Yeah. Like even hitting it with a heat gun probably wouldn't do the trick. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, idea, I mean, actually. other than not lining up, I don't have too many too many problems with them. But yeah, they they are fantastic for moving. That is a the biggest plus for those enclosures and cleaning, cleaning and moving, they're a breeze because, yeah, I mean, I can pick up that massive enclosure by myself and walk it around the house if I needed to, <laughs> provided it's empty. So, yeah. Yeah, it certainly makes the job a lot easier just because of how light they are. It, yeah. In that sense, you really can't complain with them. Just, as I said, there's just a few things that you can fix up here and there. I have seen some people that manage to do the swinging doors with the bigger tanks, but yep. they put like something in the middle so that you've, yeah, it's okay. not one door going the whole way out. Yeah. Because otherwise that's going to be a hell of a long door to go across and that could take up, you know, half your room in an instant. Yeah, let alone like just having that prop in the middle would be good to just kind of hold up if there is any other exactly. tanks above it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that should hopefully prevent some of the bowing that can happen. I found with ours at least that a lot of the bowing is towards the front as well. And they just kind of cave in under the weight because they were kept outside, so you get a lot of water coming into them. 
and the water just cat, you know, weighs them down and they just start bowing a little bit. I even had one that bowed kind of in the doorway. So it, there's like yay gap, just a, like an inch or so gap between what the, the frame of the door is supposed to be and where the, the swinging door sits. Um, and even getting that into back into place, you know, I've tried bending and everything and they're, they're pretty persistent, the, uh, the old plastic, that's for sure. They don't like to mold back into place. <laughs> Definitely not. So, um, just, are, are you kind of able to just kind of elaborate on your outdoor enclosures? Because that's something yep. that always interests me as well. And I know that you're having a little bit of success with, I believe it's your Eastern Water Dragons outdoors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, both the blotchies and the Easterns have been going nuts so far. Um, the, the Eastern Water Dragons, I'm just going to let them do their thing. Um, so, the females, both females in previous years for the, the previous owners um, were able to lay in the right spot and hatch out their eggs and everything like that. Um, so I'm just going to let them do their thing. Um, yep. I did try giving a little bit of a look, you know, seeing if there was any. And I think I just ended up disturbing her. So I went, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not touching them. You do your thing. I've actually got one of the babies from their last um, clutch is is uh, going to be a future male for the group. Um, he's in there with them as well, which is working quite well, surprisingly. Um, but for that enclosure, I think it's about – three meters by 1.8 by 1.8 give or take um and essentially you've got corrugated iron around the base um and then your aviary mesh like the budgie aviary mesh um along the rest and one third of the top is covered in with corrugated iron as well um just to try and give it a little bit of that uh you know space away from the the elements i suppose um and then i've got in there just one of those big bunnings ponds just a like a, a plastic tub basically um and a a solar pump um and then plenty of rocks and climbing bits and pieces for them um surprise i'm quite surprised and impressed with how the the plant growth has gone in there actually i'm certainly no gardener um but they've managed to grow fairly well i'm very impressed especially with the kangaroo paw that's one that i absolutely love um and i'm probably going to put a few more in for the king skinks um when i do their enclosure because i've seen footage of them actually eating kangaroo paw which is something interesting Oh, man, if you can incorporate it yeah. into their diet naturally by putting a plant in, then why not? Yeah, that's exactly. it. That's it. Um, and then so that's the the aviary is built basically onto the shed. Um, the only downfall with that is that it sits right next to the water tank. So we've had some issues with uh, rust buildup on the corrugated iron because the when the water tank overflows, it goes straight into that spot. Um, so that's something I'm going to have to think about for, for that enclosure. Um then for the, the blotchy pit, the blotchy pit is built around the back window of our uh, lounge room. So during the day when you're walking through the house, you can just hear them kind of knocking on the window. Um, <laughs> and you, it's really good for viewing purposes because I can go in and figure out who's breeding with who because I can see them all rather than going in there and disturbing them and all that sort of thing. Um, so that one's probably out of the outdoor enclosures I've done so far, that one's probably my favorite just because I can be sitting there in, in the lounge room watching a movie and then all of a sudden I just hear a thud and I go, ah, oh, that one's chasing that one. Right, okay, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool that you can still see them yeah. from your lounge room like that. Like yeah. it's almost like having an almost aquarium or a yeah, terrarium sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, that. exactly. But oh, yeah, good. that's it's certainly been an, an interesting experience doing the two outdoor enclosures and figuring out, you know, what's worked and what hasn't worked and why different things have happened. Um, one thing that I have had some issues with is that tiny little mice getting yep. into the enclosures, not so much because of the 
the lizards or anything, more just like digging holes and things, um, which I quickly have to, you know, patch up with a brick here and there and make sure that none of the lizards get out or anything like that. Um, I have had some issues with Cunningham skinks managing to find those holes, um, which has been an interesting experience. But uh, he, funny story with that one, actually. So I had one Woodlands Cunningham. Unfortunately, I put him in with the water dragons and he decided to go for a swim that didn't end too well. But anyway, um, he managed to get out of the pit and I knew that he had gone because the dog who's my basically my fauna spotter in the backyard, he figures out where things are before I do. Um <laughs> He was sniffing around like different, two different sides of our back fence. So I went, okay, something's gone wrong here. Something's not right. And then a couple of days later, I was just walking out of doing like a practice exam here in the front room and I came back down there and I just heard this loud run across the roof of the pit and the Cunningham skink is sitting on the wire mesh on the top of the pit wanting to go back in, I think. I don't know. I was like, I don't know how you've done that but you're back anyway. So I quickly ran out there and grabbed him and then put him in the aviary because uh, I knew that was secure. Um, and then, yeah, unfortunately he decided he was going to go for a swim and that didn't end too well for him. But again, it's that figuring out what works and what doesn't work. At least I know now, okay, uh, your Cunningham skinks don't work with water dragons just because they decide water is a good idea. Um, Cunningham skinks and all of your agonia just need to be in something that is literally bulletproof, like, Yep. no way to escape at all. Like cross your eyes, dot your T's, everything in between. Like my plan for this King Skink tank is to have it fully enclosed and even do like concrete on the bottom just so there's no way that anything can get in or they can get out and just go the full nine yards and make sure that they they are there. I've even got a plan to do like a, a double door system um, because I found with the water dragons, um, sometimes on a warm day, that can be a bit of an issue with them coming to the door when I'm going in and the dog plus the water dragons tend to not work out too well if I let that happen um, because the dog has a bad ex- that bad history with reptiles finding their way into the backyard, wild ones that is. Um, so I've sort of learnt from the mistakes of the other enclosures and figured out what I'm going to do for this next one that's going to try and I suppose put all that learning into practice I guess. Yeah, I think a double door in any Avery situation, if you've got one of those animals that's going to be pretty quick to the door, especially if they're a bit hot and hungry, then uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. a bit of a safeguard for both both you even, and the animal. Even like a um, like a bit of like a three, four hundred mil perspex step or something down the bottom, so you know that they can't run out on the ground. On yeah, helps as well. That way, yeah, you're definitely not taking up so much space with the double door. That's yeah, not a bad idea. Especially if you've got those animals like, you know, blue tongues or yeah, water yeah. dragons or something. Well, I suppose a water dragon could probably scale the fence next to you though. That's the yeah, true. issue. True. <laughs> yeah, I found the, the water dragons aren't too bad generally. If anything, it's just the little one that's more the concern. Um, he's yep. about a year old, so he's still only, you know, yay big, maybe, you know, maybe 10, 15 centimetres. So he's probably the main concern. But fortunately, he's more scared of me than anything. So he just runs the other direction, which works out all right. Um but when I had Cunningham skinks in there previously, that was more the worry. The second I lift up their tub, because their tub is right where the door is, it's just to get them out of the weather. Uh, the second I lift up that lid, they bolt everywhere. And if I'm in, like semi in the enclosure, taking the tub off, the doors open behind me. And having those sorts of animals 
sprinting around all over the place. Just, yeah, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> They're not a common kept reptile these days too much either, the water dragons. That's yeah. something that I wanted to bring up is the fact that they're a very underrated reptile, much like the Murray-Darling carpets, but probably even more so. It's been interesting. There's been a, a wave of popularity down here with both your water dragons and your Cunningham skinks in particular. Um, just over the last probably two, three years, they went from nobody wanted them, maybe $10, $15 animals at best, um, to all of a sudden everybody wants them, everybody's looking for them, um, which is quite a surprise. Uh, I, I kind of err on the side of caution with water dragons at least. kind of worries me the amount of interest that they do have because I know what sort of space they really need and I don't know how many people that want them can provide that, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's that whole, you know, vetting who you sell to to make sure that they can provide what the animal needs um, both now and five, six years down the track when it's the site, you know, like a metre long. It's the yeah. same sort of, yeah, I suppose that's that's my concern. But, yeah, they've certainly become very popular. Those and... The Gippsland water dragons have basically disappeared, to be honest. Yeah. Like the pure 100% Gippslands, almost none of them around now. Yeah, you used to see quite a few of them five, six years ago advertised, but yeah, maybe actually yeah, they, a little bit longer they, than that. There used to be a guy down here who, uh, I think his name was Michael Breen, who used to breed the real nice blue ones. Um, yeah. And I think he used to sell those for like 100 bucks at the expos every year, and they've just disappeared now. But that yeah, was one of those, those things ones. that, yeah, you look at those and go, now that, that's cool. Like that and a, a really warm eastern water dragon, like when they're bright colors and everything, Yeah, you can't you can't beat that. Like I know, Luke, you've got the frilly. That's probably the closest thing that you can get to compete with that, I reckon, as oh, far as your dragons nice, go. I think there's a lot of nice dragons out there. You get like mm. those guys from down in South Australia with like the Air Peninsula dragons and yeah. like painted dragons. Man, there, there's so many bright colored dragons out there and, you know, good patterns and things. I even like some of the simple ones, like some. Of, I don't even think you can keep them, but you know those like pebble mimic dragons. Mm. Those yep, things yep. are awesome. I'd love to do an enclosure with those guys and just have those little cryptic dragons sitting there, mm. and you can't even see them. I reckon that's fantastic. I suppose the only downside with all those little things is because they generally only live for like five years at most. That's probably the only problem is that you kind of have to keep them, breed them, and just keep repopulating, yep. and just keep it going. Whereas, you know, like the water dragons, I think the two females are probably 10, 15 years old. Um, yep. And yeah, okay. the, the boy is probably about 10 nowadays as well. Um, so, like, longevity-wise, you can't beat them, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good for, for dragons in general, I suppose. Yeah. A lot of dragons don't live a hell of a lot longer than that, generally. Oh, that's mad. Uh, what made you so lizard dominant in general? Is there any sort of like reason that you went so heavy into the lizards? Do you reckon yep. you get a little bit more out of the lizards than you do the snakes, for example? Um, look, to be completely honest, it's it's uh, uh, even simpler than that. Uh, Mum hated snakes at the very start. Um, so that was a, an instant no-go zone. Um, yep. which to, to my uh, displeasure, I, I went along with it um, until fortunately – uh, one of the uh, vice principals at the school, uh, he's got a diamond python that's in his office um, and he kept kind of pushing it onto my mum. You know, every couple of days he'd go, oh, here, have a look. And then eventually it was here, hold it. And then it was, oh, he's going to come home with you guys over the summer, which is allowed in their permits actually as well. So I ended up having 
the diamond python here. Um, and then eventually mum was like, yeah, okay, you know, fine. Once she got over the, the fear element and now she doesn't mind, like she sits in here when I feed them and is happy to pat or, you know, hold them whenever I grab them out, whatever it is. That was the main reason why I went more lizard heavy to start with. Um, although I find myself nowadays wanting to go more the opposite direction, to be honest, um, just because I found like the Murray Darlings and the Brittles are just, I feel like they're a bit easier in, in the longer yep. term, especially yep. because like for me, now that I've finished high school, I suppose that saying the world is your oyster comes to play where I'm like, okay, now I can you know go places and do things, but I don't want to have too many things that are going to need feeding every couple of days because it'll be on the parent's or Dane, if he's not on a trip with me, potentially. Um, yeah. It's that, you know, there's other considerations at play, I suppose. Yeah. It's definitely a downside to lizard keeping. Yeah, mm. definitely. We were having that conversation before. Yeah. So. At least, but, yeah. I suppose, at least with the blueies compared to like your geckos and monitors, Luke um, and, and Jason, both of you have got your geckos and that sort of stuff. Um, that stuff you really need to be feeding, what, every day, every two days, maybe every three at best. Yeah, I yeah. tend to do about every third day. The monitors are probably more like every second day yeah. or thereabouts, depending on what I've fed them recently. You know, if I'm smashing eggs and mints and my meat mix and stuff like that, I can probably give them a few extra days in between. But, yeah, if it's bugs, like if I'm doing bugs, yeah, every couple of days with the monitors tends to be the go. Yeah, so I suppose that limits you guys a bit more on what you can do, at least for the blueies. Like if they don't have food for a week, that's not going to be too bad of a problem for them. Um, yeah, because if anything, size of them too. A lot of those blueies. Yeah, condition. Yeah, if anything, it's probably only the king skinks that would really need to be fed regularly, and even then, they bulk up like a bluey really quickly anyway. So it's not, you know, that there's a little bit more allowance there, I suppose, compared to some yeah. of the smaller stuff. Um, yeah, which which does work out okay. Like I don't have to worry if I'm going away for a week, long weekend, or something like that. It's just more those if I do decide to go on sort of extended travels or whatever it may be. Um, that there may be issues, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, at least with blueies and stuff as well, if you do have, you know, like certain types of cat or dog kibble as part of their diet as well, you can kind of chuck in a big bowl of that and, and let them have that as long as they've got the water there as well. Um, I tend to do that with my blueies and my Cunningham seem to go nuts for, what is it? I think it's whiskers. I go nuts mm. for whiskers kibble. That's probably not my favorite one to use. I do like the Purina one, but... Yeah, yeah, the can... purine is the one that I go with if I'm doing the the, the dry stuff. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that seems to work wonders. Like, I'm surprised even the Centralian blueies that are supposed to be one of the pickier eaters, they went straight onto it. That was, like, the only thing they'd eat. And I yeah. was, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I was like, okay, I mean, at least you're eating, so sure. <laughs> do do what do what you do, I guess. But uh, yeah. they, they quickly turn into kegs on legs, those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So um, what, what um, what got you so attracted to the Murray Darling pythons in particular? Because you know you've obviously coming up with a few different localities with those. Yep. And, and yep. what what sort of breeding programs are you going to tr- try to start up from here? Yep. Um. So as far as what drew me to them, um, when I went to uh, what was it three or four years ago, the one of the VHS expos, um, I had started thinking that I was going to do my own wildlife demonstrations. So the plan was that I was going to start putting together a collection of Victorian native species um, that I could take out to, to kids' shows and that sort of thing. Um, so it was either a diamond python or a Murray Darling. 
And one piece of advice that I got from multiple people was make sure that you can handle it before you buy it so you know that it's a, 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 a dare I say, a friendlier snake, if that makes sense. Um, yep. So I went in there, uh, looked at, I think there was two diamonds there on the day that I looked at. One was sold before I could ask to hold it. Another one was a no-handle zone, which I completely understand now, looking back at it, going, yep, I completely understand. You know, you buy a security risk, especially at Expos, makes complete sense, although I didn't really like the idea then. Um, but then I went to uh, Kevin Wal- Welsh's table um, and he had some Murray Darlings. And I said, oh, can I you know, give him a hold? And he goes, yeah, sure. And he goes, these are like the best pet snakes that you can have as far as temperament goes. And I found that out very quickly. I think I've only been tagged twice um, with the 10 or so that I've got. Um, both of those times were completely my fault for being an idiot. But, you know, you, you get that with the, with the snakes anyway. Um, but, yeah, that was sort of the main thing that drew me to them at the start was that Victorian species um, element. Uh, as far as breeding programs go, I'm kind of in two minds at the moment because I want to produce more of the locality things. But I'm also – I've been listening to a lot of the what the, the guys over in the UK are doing as far as like stud books and that sort of thing and going for genetic diversity in your breedings as well. So what I'm thinking I'm probably going to do over the next couple of years once the, the other locales get up to size – is focus on doing one locality pure breeding every year and one that's a, a mixed locality. So then I can go to, like, I've got friends that do demos and work at zoos and that sort of thing. I can go, okay, this is the genetically diverse pairing. This is the offspring. That's probably what I recommend for you guys. This is the locality for the, you know, the purists in the hobby. This is what you would want. Um, and then just kind of go from there, to be honest. That's a pretty good fresh yeah. take on, on how to look at it, really. Yeah, well, um, I figure the, the, the zoo world is, is that what they try to do with your genetic diversity is try and set up a population that can be uh, avoid inbreeding for 50 to 100 years. So I've got here four different locales um, that, in all honesty, are from maybe three original animals, you know, give or take. But the second they go over each other it's across state lines so they're not going to be anywhere near each other in that original wild state um and then you've got that whole new blood i suppose and even then if i decide to hold back something from say a vic over a dejara let's say if i go for that pairing i can put it over one of my new south wales or my pillages and then they're even more unrelated and it just keeps going from there to the point where you've got yeah completely unrelated murrays that are you know tame as anything as well um, and with the Dejara size influence, they actually, they're an interesting one. Um, they grow to around about the size of an adult children's python, give or take wow. about 1.2 meters. Yeah. Um, so that in itself is going to be an interesting thing to see um, over the next couple of years. Um, I know I've spoken to a few guys that are looking at potentially treating it almost like the like dwarf and super dwarf retics and putting it into the morphs potentially and seeing how that smaller size plays into, you know, increasing your potential market, I guess, if you're doing it like a, as a marketing sense um, yep. and kind of competing with the enteresia market in that sense um, with the morph side of things, if that's what you're into. Um, but, yeah, I just think that there's there's different ways that you can go about it, I suppose, because I still want to have the pure locality stuff but also want to try and produce this diverse group as well at the same time. So yeah. it's just kind of figuring out 
which I do when and, you know, which is probably in all honesty going to be dependent on what's not being bred in that year. Because um, fortunately, yeah. all the people that I've gotten those from, I still talk to fairly regularly. So I can, you know, send a message to someone and go, hey, are you breeding these this year? If they go, look, I'm not, then I can go, all right, I'll pair those because there's not, you know, nobody else is going to be producing many of those this year. Um, so then that way, at least if there's people that want them, they're on offer, I suppose. Yeah. I was just trying to fill that gap, essentially, yeah. and making sure you're just not saturating the market at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Like I can accommodate probably three or four pairs once I'm done. I've got one more animal that I need to get Murray's wise to, to pair everything off with. Um, and then I'm just about done. And I could probably have, yeah, four or five pairs on the go if I really wanted to. But I just don't see the need for it, to be honest. Um, maybe one or two pairs at most per year. Because even then, there's enough people, like the Murrays are at that point now where there's enough people that have bought into them over the last couple of years that are going to be producing them because they're not around all that much. Um, so it's, I'm kind of at that point where in the next couple of years, there's probably going to be a lot more of them around than what there is now. Um, so I don't really need to put a whole lot out there, just enough to, I suppose, suffice with the people that want them. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's a it's, a it's a good kind of program though. Like I, I can definitely relate to that. It's um probably the right way to go around things rather yeah. than a lot of other people out there that are just like every year pumping their snakes, getting as much as they can out there because they're probably looking at it like a bit of a cash cow rather than the actual animals that are going to be around for the next 20 years. Yeah, yeah like even with the, the, I think, five young ones that I've got at the moment, they're on about every two-week of feed schedule. Most people would probably give them once a week. I'm not fussed about getting them up to size or anything like that in a hurry. They'll just do what they do naturally. Um, and yeah. Once they get there, they get there, and then we can go from there. Yeah, exactly. I, I've, uh, I've definitely changed my tune with that in the last few years, I'd say. Is that's, I look at a lot of my snakes now, and I don't even keep feed cards anymore for a lot of them because it's just like as long as I know that they're eating somewhat regularly, I'm going, that's good. You know, yeah. We'll leave it at that. And honestly, some of them are getting fed every two weeks. Some of them might get fed every three weeks. It might be every four weeks. It just depends on the snake, depends on the size meals, you know. Yeah, definitely. Some, something like my diamonds that I chuck a large rat at, and they are a large rat, you know, once a month's fine. You know, yeah, yeah. They, they don't need you that. You could probably even go longer. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, to be fair, like, I mean, they don't get food for about six months of the year. Yeah, so. yeah I do the same with my adult Murray pair. Um, they get fed normally once a month, but um, the female, I just have let her do her thing for the time being, and we're seeing how that goes. If I notice that that's probably not an ideal situation once she pumps out her eggs, I'll go, okay, next year I can feed her a little bit more regularly during that time after i suppose after the breeding and before the eggs um yep. just to make sure that she's got enough condition on her but i think she'll be fine she was nice and fat before uh, we put them together um yep. and the boy i've only sort of just recently gotten onto food i it was interesting i found that he was a bit difficult getting back onto feed um initially like i had to give him i had a, a little mouse left over from feeding one of the baby murrays and i actually had to give that to him first for him to take the rat just, I suppose it was that kind of breeding mode brain, maybe something like that, where he was too focused on other things. Um, but yeah, now he's back on the food and everything like that. So I'm not too worried about that. But yeah, it's that whole do you do regular feeding less often or just kind of figure it out when, it, you know, based on the animal and their condition? It kind of depends on how you do it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Oh, man. Like, just, I've always been amazed at how much weight 
females can lose off, you know, laying a clutch of eggs mm. as well. And my green tree was a perfect example of that. She's always been a super chunky green tree. And yep. once she's done this clutch of eggs, I'm looking at her and she's as thin as a rake. I'm going, Jesus, mm. you know, that was a hell of a diet for you to be able to <laughs> get rid of these things. I think she's going to be a bit leaner going forward after this. But, yeah, yeah. the amount of work that they put into those eggs. It's the same with the blueies. You know, uh, I've had last two years I was able to breed the northerns and um, that first first year was like one of the females I absolutely loved, um, although I did end up moving her on to a, a lovely family because I decided that I wasn't going to keep her because she wasn't doing as well as I'd hoped with me. Um, yep. But she pumped out about 13 and she was nice and big, you know, beforehand and I reckon she probably lost maybe 200 grams just pumping out the babies. And I was like, geez, you're looking a bit thin after that. Let me stuff some e- extra egg and extra, you know, dog food into you. Make sure you get nice and fat now. Get back yeah. on the food and everything. Yeah. So um, something else that I think, you know, we've already kind of touched on, but you do actually appreciate a good book. I just wanted to see if you could give us a few suggestions as to, you know, maybe some books that, you know, if people aren't into books and they're a bit new to the hobby, maybe it's a younger generation again, you know, some recommendations of certain books that you might kind of point them in the right direction from, from your standpoint. What's your favorite book? I've collected my uh, top five, I think it is. Um, That's a good number. There is a little bit of a system involved. So <laughs> as far as your, your keeping goes, I've got uh, Keeping and Breeding Australian Pythons. That was edited by Mike Swan, but each uh, species is done generally by a different person. Um, yep. That at the time, I think, I think this was done in the you know early 2000s, maybe the 90s. Um, so at the time, whoever was like the person for that species wrote their chapter and um, so that one I find really good, even though some of it might be a little bit dated nowadays. Um, it's a fantastic resource that I like to go back to fairly regularly. Um, I don't have a copy of the Complete Carpet Python, although the school does and I'm trying to get it off them because I know it's out of print now. Um, <laughs> and I'm waiting for the new one to come out as well. I'm very excited about that and the whispers yes. that I've heard about what that's going to look like too. Um, but that's my like go-to for keeping. And there is also the keeping and breeding. I think it's Australian lizards or something like that. That's under the same, uh, done by Mike's one as well. That's a fairly solid book as well. Uh, and the Danny Brown series too. You can't go wrong with that. Although I don't have that on hand or I don't have that series on me um, yet. I say yet, you know, book, book addiction is one of those things. Um, but Jason, yeah. Jason might have a few spares behind him if he <laughs> I just, just yeah. <laughs> yeah, it got to the point there where um one of my one of my other mates had bought the you know the the the, the full like the three hundred page book or whatever it is you know the big one um, the lizard one yeah yeah the, the 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 you know all of them combined and yep. um he just kept sending us photos of different pages like oh gee I didn't know that and I'd be like you bugger I want that book <laughs> it's like um, nine hundred dollars now. Yeah, exactly. I, I think he got it on sale at that when there was a couple of years ago when it went on sale and he was jumped straight on it. And I was like, yeah, yeah that's, that's when I got it. I wish I bought two, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I should have bought two. Yeah, I, I wish two I'd, for the price of one. Wish I jumped on that too, but oh, yeah. that's all right. Um, I remember seeing it cheap at an expo for about a hundred bucks, and I was like, "No, nah, buy an olive python instead." <laughs> now I'm going. Should have got the book. <laughs> and then I've got as far as like a story element goes we've got uh john can the last snake man 
Oh, that's um, a good one. That's a good read. Absolutely that one. love that one. There's so much stories involved in there from the earlier days of you know reptiles. Like I love the VHS has had a few talks from some of the older guys and love hearing the the stories. Like they'll, they'll just say you know yeah we went to this spot and found like a hundred tiger snakes in a few hours and I'm like hang on what? Sorry, it took me like five years to find my first one. What do you mean a hundred in a in a few hours? That's insane. Um, but yeah, I love hearing about the the old school guys and what they got up to um the other one that i really liked i haven't got here in my uh, little five stack um is uh venom by brendan james murray um yep, if you haven't given that one a read that is probably one of my all-time favorite books um and brendan is a uh, an english teacher down here in victoria as well wow and the way that he's put that book together is just fantastic between you know balancing the indigenous history of the time plus what was happening with the uh, AHS members and getting the coastal taipans and the antivenom and all that sort of thing and weaved it all together into such a good story. Like, that is fantastic. Um, then I've got sort of some ID books. So we've got, uh, because I am Victorian, of course, you've got to have Reptiles of Victoria. Um, that's my go-to for anything, especially like your notice and that where you go, oh, is it this one or is it that one? I don't know. Let's have a look at the book. Um, Although, interestingly enough, they do classify something slightly differently in that, which has been one interesting thing that I've found in a lot of the, the guides and that sort of thing is certain things, depending on who accepts what, you know, paper and that some things can be a little bit different. So I suppose yep. you've always got to cross-check those things as well. Um, I've got Snakes of Australia by Scott and Ty, of course. Can't yep, go wrong with cool. that one. Um, They're actually going to have a sale too. Yeah, it's I saw that. Christmas, yeah, so. They've got uh, the whole series Gotta coming give Scott up. Scott a shout out. Yeah, three and then, for 60 bucks or something, I think it is. Then yeah. you've got the Bible, of course. You've got to have a cogger, at least yep. one. Um, that, is that the that, latest one? I think so. It's the uh, updated 7th. Yeah. I think it's 2018. Let me have a look. But, yeah, you can't go wrong with I say, a I wonder if it's the one I don't have. <laughs> yeah, 2018. <laughs> yeah. I think I've got the 2018. That no, one I don't. No, I don't have that one. That's like the, the Bible as far as your, yeah. your identification books go. Yeah, definitely. But, um, um, there's all of those. And then I've also got one thing that I've just recently put together myself is I've printed off basically every Murray-Darling paper that I can find um, from a bunch of different authors and any reference to Murray-Darlings in any of the ID books, whatever it is, and kind of combined it all into one a little booklet so I can figure out where they're found in the wild, what's happening, um, what their captive reproduction is like, even cases of uh, canid predation in the wild as well. So your foxes and your dog, wild dogs taking a munch on them as well. Just about everything that I could find so far, I have left some extra pages in there too to fill them in when I find more papers. Um, but, yeah, that's something that I've worked on uh, over the last probably couple of weeks uh, once exams were all over, I went, okay, now I need to get my research brain on. <laughs> That's one thing I want to start doing as well is printing off some of the um, research papers and different papers and putting them into folders like you've done. Yeah, I, I suppose I took that idea actually from Eric because uh, he mentions how he collated all of the websites from, you know, back when he first got into it all, uh, at least yep. for, you know, getting back into the, the, the carpet pythons and that. Um, the second I heard that idea, I was like, that is a fantastic idea. I need to do something like that for the things that, you know, I'm really passionate about, which is the, the Murrays in particular, especially because one thing that I hope to do in the, in the next couple of years is do some further research on them potentially 
uh, in the, the uni side of things as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, yeah, it's such a fantastic way of trying to put it all together. It's something that yep. I should probably do with the Giller knife or something like that that does really trigger my trigger my fancies. And I've never done it. I've got plenty of books that have got plenty of little segments on them, but just being able to take a few few photocopies of those pages and put it all into one book like that makes it super easy just to reference one species. Mm. And even if you can put like, you know, maybe a page or two on the end of your own observations as well, just to tie yeah, it all in yeah. together. That's a good idea. That's a fantastic idea. I might have to do that. That's uh, given me something else to add to my to-do list. Thanks, mate. <laughs> that's it. It's one of those things that's always growing, isn't it, the to-do list? Oh, never stops. I have to keep <laughs> writing down things on it and then crossing them out. And Yep. I, even tonight, you know, I've got a little to-do list going, got to defrost such and such food for such and such animal tomorrow morning and got to water plants and feed crickets to these geckos and blah, blah, blah. Never stops. So, mate, you've also had a little bit of experience working alongside some local reptile demonstrators. What's that like as a day-to-day sort of thing? Yep. And have you had some pretty inter- interesting interactions with the public as well? Yeah, yeah. So, I've done um, – I did a week of work experience with uh, one demonstrator company um, and I've worked for another one sort of sparingly here and there and that will probably – pick up more over the next couple of months once I get my driver's license and I can actually go out and do the gigs myself. Um, but it's been very interesting. You know, the, all, always dealing with the public is always an interesting experience. Um, I suppose, fortunately, my introduction to it uh, was really just a trial by flyer. The very first demo that I did was a shopping centre, um, a local shopping centre here. And um, that asking about funny stories, we had a, it was an old lady. I was holding a, a baby uh, saltwater crocodile, saltwater, freshwater, one of the two, holding a baby crocodile. And she walks up and goes, yeah, that'd be a nice bag. I was like, yep, thank you. That's that's what I want to hear. Awesome. And I said, oh, you know, it's really friendly and everything. Like you can give it a pat. She goes, nah, don't want to see it. Don't want a bar of it. I was like, all right, you do you, whatever. Um, although I have found one of the interesting things is that kids don't have fear yep, until yep. they get to a certain age where mm. the parents have instilled the fear. Yep. Oftentimes in that day in particular, you had kids running up to the animals to see the animals and the parents were standing all the way over there going, oh my God, is that what I think that is? Oh, I need to grab my kid. Oh, but it's it's the, the kid's fine. It's loving it. But the animal, ah, I don't know what to do. And then eventually they come around to it and they're like, oh, actually, this is, this is not too bad. I don't know what I was scared of. Um, it's that whole, you know, f- I think fear in things like your reptiles and that is taught rather than like you're not born with that. Yeah. That's taught over time. And it's been interesting to see like because I've worked with a few different U-levels through the school as well where that kind of fits into play. I think it starts to kind of peak in at around primary school age. And then once they get to the like teenage phase, they're a bit more rebellious. So maybe they're okay with it. Maybe they're not. And then they get to sort of my age now where it's just not fussed, like whatever it is, they don't mind. Um, Unless there's some that have had like a traumatic experience, which is surprisingly common um, as well. But yeah, it's always, it's always an interesting thing dealing with people and animals and how that interaction works as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I go quite often at the shop. Mm. 
And another thing too is if something happens to a kid, like if they've held a snake and the snake's bit them or, you know, or a lizard and it's run or something like that, then that is another thing that instills that fear as well. But if, if you know, if they're holding a snake, nothing happens or, or along those lines, they've got no issues at all. I think the fear, like you said, is just kind of taught. Mm, definitely. And I think one thing that probably doesn't do it any favours is um, some of the – I suppose like news media around that sort of thing and the the dramatization of it all probably doesn't do it any favors or any justice in that sense that um, I suppose the fear is sort of supported by what's around the person as well. Dead snake kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. And like I did um, a uh, a rural show with another another demonstrator um, down in Ballarat uh, for their like uh, like their Melbourne show equivalent down there. And there was a lot of that mentality, which kind of makes sense in a, in a more rural setting. Um, and even the, the gent that I was doing it with said, yeah, this is a reoccurring theme with the, the people that I sort of interact with on the day-to-day. Um, but there was also a lot that were had no issues with it and actually were like, you know, yeah, we get them on the farm and we love them, you know, happy with them there because at least they take away, you know, your, like your rodents and your mice and that sort of thing. So we don't actually mind having them. Um, there's even... I read somewhere there was cases of uh, farmers releasing carpet pythons on their properties to take the mice down in the in the earlier stages of like Australian uh, expansion, I guess, of the Europeans. They would take your carpets out of like Brisbane and Sydney and take them out to areas where the farms were just to keep the mice numbers down. Yeah, so I have heard that as well, where yeah. they'd go and stick them in their barns and let them kind of take out the take out the lo- local rodent population. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, um, like if you go on iNaturalist or the Atlas of Living and you go, oh, (laughs) hang on, that's nowhere near where it's supposed to be. I wonder how that happened. Yeah, Yeah, it makes you wonder about all the subspecies and stuff like that. Like obviously they've been around for ages, but, you know, a bit of muddled blood there maybe. Yeah, a bit bit of extra gene flow that they probably didn't account account for. Breaking those land bridges. Yep. Mm. So, um, just to kind of kind of furthermore to the that demonstrator side of things for you as well, you've now wrapped up high school and you're you're going straight back into being hands on and helping out, getting the reptilian sector of the school up and running. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what's happening at the school and what your involvement is? Yeah, absolutely. So it was an interesting experience. I've I've worked for them previously when the the main animal guy has had to take uh, sick leave or whatever it is. Um, so it wasn't new as such. Um, but I went from student to staff in about 12 hours. Um, <laughs> so I went from last exam to, oh, hi, wait, I have like a staff card now. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> and I'm still kind of figuring out, you know, when I hear the bells go, I'm like, oh, I need to get somewhere. And then I go, wait, no, I actually don't need to go anywhere now. It's it's okay. You can keep doing what it is that you're doing. Um so it's been an interesting experience kind of uh, wrapping my head around that side of things because um, there is still students at the school as well. All the other levels are still here for the next two weeks and then they're off uh, on summer holidays. Um, so the the school's collection um, initially was sort of an, an eclectic bunch uh, put together by who is now one of the, the, the vice principals of the school. Um, and the idea was to have nice displays and a mixture of uh, native animals to show the students, you know, like the biodiversity of the country, I suppose, um, and to hopefully bring some of them into classroom settings and have that hands-on interaction. Um, although over the years, some of that has been lost. Um, we're getting back on track with it all now uh, in recent times. Um, I've been working on 
uh, over the last six years that I was at the school working on a student zookeeper program, which basically is mirroring what LHS have done, uh, Lilydale High School have done over there. Uh, Marcus and Mike are, and the team there, I cannot fault them for what they do. Um, and they were more than accommodating to help us with some resources and different bits and pieces as well. Um, I can't count how many times Marcus has offered advice about different bits and pieces to try and get, you know, more support for the program and how to go about running it and that sort of thing. Um, so it's been a, a quite a good experience in that sense. The collection itself over the years has been an interesting bunch. Um, in the early days, from what I hear from different people, they had things like keelbacks and Centralian blueies when they were coming straight out of the bush. Um, and I like I hear those stories and I'm like, hang on, you said you could get Centralians for 50 bucks and you had keelbacks? What? Like that that doesn't make sense now because they're almost nowhere. Um, yep. I actually, is there any, I don't I know of anybody that really keeps keelbacks, maybe like two or three people at best. I'm not too sure. Yeah. But um, so it went from sort of a, a strange hodgepodge collection to now you've got shinglebacks, beardies, carpets, uh, diamonds, uh, a bunch of short neck turtles, long neck turtles, um, and a couple of birds as well nowadays. Um, although I'm hoping we've got uh, a bit of money left in the budget. So I think we're going to go on a shopping spree soon to get some more critters to bump up the numbers a little bit because we've got a few too many spare tanks for my liking. <laughs> <laughs> Anything on the, the hit list with that yeah, spare what's, money? What's um, yeah. So one that we, we had for most of the time that I've been at the school that we had a, a sand monitor um, and her name was Max and she was probably my favorite out of all the animals that we had because she was an angry, mean thing, but she'd calm down when I was holding her. So I, I absolutely love that animal, and I want to get another one um, in particular, either that or an Aki. I'll settle for an Aki as well, just so it's a little bit more manageable for whoever takes it on once I'm out of there. Um, but, yeah, I really want to get uh, at least another monitor of some description. I know some of the guys down there are really keen on their dragons as well, so we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, the, the sand monitor is probably the main one that I'd like to tick again because uh, she was probably one of my favourites out of the animals that we had. I did actually, funny story, I did try, uh, she laid an egg randomly. Um, we actually thought it was a girl for a, uh, a boy for ages. And then, she, yeah, and then she <laughs> laid an egg. But, you know, the, the strange thing was it actually looked fertile, but there was no male anywhere. So I was like, oh, my God, have we just, like, what is happening? So I set up the incubator, but we didn't have anything for incubation. So unfortunately, the egg went bad within a couple of hours, but I could have sworn that that was a fertile egg. And I have no idea if it would have gone the distance, had it been in the right conditions or what, but that's one of those things that will just keep me, you know, keep me up at night going, I wonder if that would have gone. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I've just started incubating any monitor egg I get now just for the slight chance that there might be a patho whatever out there so yeah it's interesting hearing all the cases of the the pathogenesis especially in as you found you know with the with the water monitors and um some of the i think there's been a few cases in panoptes i believe from memory um so i wouldn't be surprised if the the sand monitors and some of the other species could do it as well it just yeah. it's that's a whole nother world to get into there yeah oh, yeah yeah, the world is the oyster of those kind of animals, you know, like at the, we're only t t uh, touching the tip of the iceberg on that one, really. And Yeah, like we're you know, certainly describing species and whatnot. Mm. So. 
Yeah. I suppose it's one of those like ultimate adaptations, being able to just pump out fertile eggs without having to worry about going through the mating process. I suppose it's why yep. binos geckos are so successful, even though they're supposedly like a complex of like 20 different species potentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that whole partho and. That's what and, I was just um, about to say. Yeah. That's that in itself is just weird. Like they have to be, there has to be some distinction there. There's no way that the pathos and the non pathos are the same. At least in, yeah. in my mind, that doesn't that doesn't equate. But yeah, it's yeah. an inter- an interesting world to go into that whole side of things. Yep, definitely. <laughs> so now that COVID's kind of almost done and dusted here in Australia, um, are you planning on getting out for any sort of like herping holidays or anything? Perhaps with Dane. Yeah, yeah. Um, one that we were going to do um, that's on the back burner for the time being, we were going to do a, a Hall's Gap trip, which is a couple of hours north um, sort of towards, I suppose it's it's in the Mallee towards uh, the Little Desert and that sort of arid part of Victoria there. Um, that was one thing that we had planned and to go past the zoo there and everything like that. Um, although the main one that we're working on at the moment is as tying in uh, slightly to your next topic as well. Um, we're p- hopefully going to do a, a week trip uh, and do the Penrith Expo um, and oh, yeah. hit as many zoos, wildlife parks and herping places that we can along the way. Um, although one trip that I would like to do once I do get my license um, is up to a, a certain part of uh, Northwest Victoria where Murray Darlings have been found previously um, and try and take as much data and information as I can um, hands off entirely because they are a threatened species down here and there's give or take about 100 or so records of them in the wild nowadays um, completely hands off and just get as much information as I can and go, okay, that's what they're doing in the wild. This is what I need to do at home to replicate that without you know having any issues with – obviously, it's like that analogy that Eric and Owen always use – with the rattlesnakes and shoveling snow into your tank, you know, there's, there's a certain element to replication of what's happening in the wild, but yeah, that's sort of the main one that I really want to do. Um, and I've always had other plans, you know, like we went to Alice Springs in winter uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and that's just given me the itch to go back in summer and try and see what I can find there. Uh, we used to do Darwin trips in the first couple of years of my life. We'd go up to Darwin once a year, because uh, we had family living up there. So, you know, going to Croc Cove and you know, catching up even possibly with uh, Dr. Gavin Bedford as well um, and trying to find Owen Pallies, that's the dream species for me as well. Um, that sort of thing, you know, uh, that's the one of the good things about being done with the school side of things is that I don't have to worry as much about, you know, oh, I need to be back to prep for this thing. Like I can have that time off, I guess. Um yeah. But yeah, I've got there's there's dreams and dream trips, which I've had mapped out for years of different places that I want to hit up. Um, and there's like the reality trips. The reality trips are probably what we're going to focus on for now. And then those <laughs> are probably, you know, five, ten years down the track, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely hear you with that one. I think Jason and I are trying to plan some of our dream trips, which are still still going to happen. Oh, yeah. But it's it's just kind of like we're still pinching ourselves, going, "Oh shit, we we really are doing this." <laughs> yeah, you know. So, but no, that's that's cool that you're planning to come up here to you know do a the bit expo, of a trip. And yeah, come up for the expo. Um, I think Jason and I actually need to touch base on that one. <laughs> yeah, sort out a few bits and pieces there. But yeah, we're hoping to hopefully still have a, a booth at that Penrith Expo. That'll be pretty good. And I think the the Sydney Expo is actually going to be on the prior week, I believe, in February. Mm. So I think that's the sixth or something. 
Yeah. yeah, one thing that I am hoping to be able to do this year at least is um, try and get to as many of them as I can um, and just, you know, tick tick off the list which ones that I've done um, just so I can say that that is a thing that I've had the experience. And, you know, it's the expo is one of those things. There's, I suppose there's two different ways that you can approach them. Either it's buying things and then going home or it's the talking to as many people as you can um, and that whole networking element, I suppose. And that's... Yeah. That's the way that I like to do things. Like when we, so my dad and I went to uh, the Sydney Expo a couple of years ago, and it was surprising because it was different to the the way the VHS does it, at least in the sense that there were people walking out within the first ten minutes with their you know tubs worth of snakes and going home. I was like, "What are you doing? You, you haven't like what? You can't have seen everything. There's no way that you've seen everything and had a chat to people. Obviously, that's not what some people do, I guess. Um, whereas for me, I like the the VHS Expo. You could probably see everything in about maybe two or three hours um, at most. I go the whole day from start to finish where the first one's in line um, and probably the last ones to go home aside from the vendors. Um, I love being able to chat to people and see what they're working with and having a talk to them about you know what they're doing and how they do things and that sort of thing. It's that whole learning off people as well. Yeah, yeah definitely. Again, that's another another part that's completely underrated at those expos is being able to network, being able to make those connections, being able to, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, especially being younger generation. Like, yeah, you know, that's when you can meet some of these breeders that have been doing it for 10 plus years or, or whatever. And meet them you know? in person too rather than just talk to mm-hmm. them online. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially they're, they're when putting, you are putting a face to a name. Exactly. Yeah, and, and and particularly if it does happen to be somebody that's part of an older generation that's maybe not so quick to text or write back or or message back, you know, that face to face that's that's crucial because that's you know you could sit down and talk for twenty minutes and get more than in that twenty minutes than you could in a month's worth of texting, you know. So mm. yeah, absolutely. And you know, some of the stories that some of the the older guys talk about, that's really not something that you can you know talk about as well as you can. Like through text, it just wouldn't be the same, or even through a phone call, it wouldn't be the same. Seeing that you know the face and the facial expressions and that sort of thing, and you know, like generally there's like a group of them that hang around the same sort of space, and they're all you know laughing at each other about the the same sort of story and everything like that. You don't get that in any other way, really, barring being exactly. there in that room and at that no. time. Yeah, it's yeah, like like me and Luke, we been talking to people all, all the time online and that expo actually met like a bunch of people that we've just been talking to online so it's actually good to put faces to names and everything else so yeah absolutely yeah, yeah it does make the world a difference although you end up yeah. coming home with a really hoarse voice and yeah, t- tired as all hell and you know need a few cold ones after that day that's yep. for sure and and maybe a few extra animals too every now and then <laughs> i was yeah <laughs> oh, yep. no, i wasn't <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I came home with a couple of geckos after the last one, I think. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I went to the last VHS expo going, I'm not coming home with anything. I'm not coming home with anything. I think I ended up coming home with like three blue tongues and I was like, oh, well, there goes that idea. Whoops. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh, that happens. Yeah. So just before we kind of wrap things up, I know that you kind of wanted to touch on a bit of uh, photography side of things, yep. which is right up Jason's alley. So, um, what, what camera are you running at the moment? What sort of gear are you using? Yep, yep. So I've uh, probably the last two or three years, I've gotten into the uh, Nikon D5600 um, and I've got a 700 to, oh no, sorry, 72, what is it, 70 to 130. 
70 to 300 mil lens and a 18 to 55 mil lens. Um, most of the time that's for photographing stuff at home more than anything. Um, I just like, rather than taking a phone picture as much as I can, I like being able to take the, you know, the nice photos, even for this more so for uh, my media classes that I was doing the last two years. Um, yep. So I've been able to use it for that purpose as well. Uh, and I built light boxes and things like that during the, you know, COVID lockdowns. You had a bit of extra time on your hands. So I purpose built these bloody heavy form fly uh, boxes just because I wanted to really. Uh, and I can make it as part of my media assessment. So I figured why not? Um, yeah. So that's kind of what most of the gear is for. But also I've started using it now that we can actually go herping. Uh, I've started using it for that as well. Um, I generally use the the 18 to 55 most. It's most yep. versatile. Um, the the bigger lens I find is more actually more for birds more than anything. Um, in particular, the, if you can't get close enough. Yeah, exactly. Any of that <laughs> stuff that's you know a few hundred meters away. Um, even like a, a couple of weekends ago, I went out with Dane and um, we saw some yellowtail black cockies, and there was no way we were going to get close enough to even consider the 800 uh, 18 to 55. So I just went straight with the big one and, it, you know, happy days with that, getting close enough to you can see what the bird is and that sort of thing. So I suppose one thing that I hope to do over the next yeah, couple of years or so is to get, in, get more into the herping photography as well. I did used to run just a, a Canon uh, snap and go type of thing, uh, which worked great, especially for when we were doing zoo trips and that sort of thing. But I just found that there wasn't enough like settings and things to play around with. I wanted yep. to have a bit more, bit more control, but also a bit more to kind of learn, I guess. Um, and my media at the time, uh, media teacher at the time, was really pushing down the, the DSLR route. So we went went out of our way to go and grab one of those. And um, I'm keen to get even. So I want to get like a flash and some other bits and pieces to add to it and go down that rabbit hole as well. Um, add that to the the, the list of reptile-related expenses. Um, <laughs> But that's yeah, that's sort of expensive, can be the most expensive one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That that's that's really the, the the main thing with the camera is kind of that incorporating the the home photos. Like I've tried to do not marketing side of things, but just make things look a little bit professional um, where yep. I can. Um, so that's where that comes in there. And I've always had a, a keen interest in the, the wildlife photography as well. That's where I actually started um, as far as the the online reptile side of things was. Um, in the wildlife photography stuff. Um, yep. So that that's sort of bringing that whole thing back together, I guess, is what, what the go is there. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. It sounds yeah, like you've pretty much ticked, start with. Yeah. Yeah, ticked every box that we're into. So yep. <laughs> you know, very much like-minded in that sense, mate. Well, like, have you, got, have you guys got anything else to add here? This has been absolutely awesome. Yeah. No, I'm no, all good. I'm all good. Happy days. Awesome. Very well presented for a young man, mate. Yeah. It's, um, yeah you talk been... better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. I was like, man, if he puts me underwater, you wait. Yeah. I'll, butcher, I'll butcher the outro now just because of this. <laughs> one of those things. Well, oh, Josh... I appreciate the invite too, by the way, guys. Like, no, I really appreciate on, it. Um, I always love some younger what... people. That's what I was going to say. I love having a chat with people about reptiles. Like, I can't complain, honestly. It's great. I love it. Yeah, no, mate. You're more than welcome anytime. You know, if you have a, a bumper season with your Murray darlings yeah. or something, and you want to come back on and tell us all the data and stuff like that that you took down for them, you just let us know, and you, 
and jump on and talk Murray's until your heart's content. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll hopefully we'll have uh, have some numbers to talk about. We'll see what happens. That sounds good. So thank thanks again, Josh, for coming on and having a chat. Did you did you want to throw out any information as to where people can follow you or come and find any information about yep, you? Yep. Um so pretty much it's just Josh's Aussie Reptiles on just about anything. There's a website out there somewhere if you can find it. Good luck to you. Um there's Facebook and Instagram as well. Uh Dane uh, and I do uh Critters and Stuff podcast. Um that name was literally just because we had no idea what we were gonna call it. Um, so we just went, yep, that'll do the trick. Um, it was kind of a bit of a whim thing that we decided we were going to do uh, just because I was bored in lockdown and went, oh, we both don't do a whole lot. How about we just add this to our you know, repertoire of things to do? Um, so we've taken that on as well, um, which is mostly reptile-related stuff, but we do like to sprinkle in other things here and there about uh, other interests that we have uh, whether that's things like talking about the school system or even a little bit of politics here and there as well. Um, so we try and mix it up a little bit. Um, and there's even some old shows that I did. So I used to do a podcast uh, through the Facebook live stream system probably oh, three, four years ago. So I've re-recorded most of those episodes uh, and I will be re-recording them all um, and putting those up periodically as well. You'll just hear a slightly squeakier voice to me um, and a slightly worse audio quality, but otherwise, um, there's still you know there's valuable information in those episodes as well. So we're trying to bring everything together, I suppose, um, and then go from there. But yeah, that's that's pretty much where you can find me. Um, and feel free if you've got any questions or anything, feel free to send me a message. I'm more than happy to, at the very least, send you in the right direction or provide any advice that I can as well. Good stuff. Oh, mate. I absolutely love that uh, that yeah. interview you did with Gavin Bedford. Yeah, I think same. I listened to that not too long ago, I've, actually, when you yeah. re-put it up. So. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Actually, when we were recording that, um, the as he went to grab out the baby Owen Pally, my screen froze. So I didn't see any of it on the night. So I was just <laughs> playing along <laughs> like I knew what was going on. Actually, there was a moment where I pulled out my phone to look at the live stream and go, oh, okay, there is actually something there. Right. Um, and it's only like I've rewatched it a couple of times now so that I actually appreciate what's going on in the video. But yeah, at the time I was half stressing like, oh my God, I hope everybody else can see this. I have no idea what's going on. Ah! <laughs> Technical difficulties are the worst. Yep. <laughs> oh, those Technology. Facebook live streams, they killed me. Oh, every week there was something wrong with the tech side of things. They were the worst. <laughs> Oh, good old Zuckerberg, hey? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.net and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.net. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. Make sure to check out our Teespring store for podcast merch. The link should be on the Facebook page. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on the on Facebook at the. Uh, <laughs> there we go. First up, <laughs> make sure to follow Jason on Facebook and, and Instagram at the Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Heptagon Podcast. <laughs> Good night, guys. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>